Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, this week we are going to talk about homelessness. It's the beginning of Homelessness Week, Awareness Week, and uh, of course with COVID that's become an increasingly uh, horrendous uh, situation with rents all across the country going up as... uh, um, I don't know, as uh, people from the city are moving to regional areas, etc., etc., etc. There's a whole range of things that are causing um, homelessness, uh, r- ranging from there not, not being enough stock as well as uh, generally um, price gouging. But we're going to be uh, get, uh, follow a national story. We're going to talk to, uh, or I had a chat with... Uh, Kate Colvin from Everyone's Home, which is the national campaign against uh, homelessness. And we're going to follow that up with a much more local story with Stephanie, uh, with Sally Thompson uh, about what's going on in the Maribyrnong area. Uh, we're going to follow that with a uh, chat with Stephanie Thurston from found about a uh, union-led, a worker-led uh, rehabilitation and outpatients project that Haksu and the AMWU are uh, spearheading in Victoria following a very successful and important development in uh, New South Wales uh, called Foundation House. It works. And we're going to talk to her about that. We're, uh, we've got, of course, uh, Kevin does a roundup of This Is The Week That Was, and we're going to finish off with Don, Don Sutherland. We haven't spoken to Don for a while, but we're going to begin with the lessons not learnt by COVID. And uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors, and if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. Yeah, keep keep your head. I hope you're all feeling a little bit safe at home, if you've got a home. Now, um, I spoke 
to, as I said, Kate Colvin, who's uh, the spokesperson for Everyone's Home, which is the national campaign against homelessness. They sent out a message saying that uh, there's a rental crisis for COVID essential workforce, with uh, 87 of Australia's 104 geographic regions showing that uh, people who are essential to the servicing of our uh, community, especially obvious during COVID, uh, all those supermarket workers, all those carers, all all the people who are um, driving the trucks, all that sort of stuff, they're finding it really difficult to find rent, uh, uh, to pay their rent in areas at a reasonable rate with at least one third of their weekly income going towards uh, their uh, accommodation and they're also having to travel tra- travel ex- uh, ridiculous lengths of time in order to actually reach their workplaces. Uh, anyway, I had a, a yarn with Kate to find out a little bit more about it all. First up, could you tell my listeners about Everybody's Home, the national campaign against homelessness? Sure. So Everybody's Home was started in um, 2018 because a whole bunch of community sector organisations were worried that the government just wasn't listening about the impact that um, lack of housing was having on people. And, um, you know, for years they haven't properly increased um, investment in social housing and and also haven't made changes that are needed like negative gearing reform and and what have you. So um, uh, it was decided that a different tack needed to be taken to better connect the public with these issues and so we created the Everybody's Home campaign um, to really raise the profile of the issue but also give the public a way to get involved through digital actions and stuff so all of the listeners can if you go to everybodyshome.com.au you can you know join up and and then be actively involved in calling on government to do a better job about the housing crisis. Now, you've just recently put out some very interesting statistics around um, the essential workforce, the uh, the carers, the uh, hospitality and uh, supermarket workers and childcare workers who are being priced out of the housing market. Yes, absolutely. And so what we're trying to show is how difficult high cost housing is even for people who are in waged employment but you know who are on on wages that are not high and a lot of the really important work in our community is done by people who unfortunately are not paid very much so people in aged care and disability support in the childcare workforce people who work in supermarkets so these are all professions we I guess rely on during times like COVID and yet for um, you know, someone working in a um, a supermarket in uh, uh, Melbourne, they would need to, um, you know, say in Western Melbourne, they'd need to pay like um, work for 16 hours just to pay rent, and that's more than a third of their um, you know week's work. And of course, if you're not a full-time employee then that means, you know, you're working 16 hours just to pay the rent and then what have you got left after you've paid the rent to manage all your other costs? Yeah, so at least one third of uh, their weekly incomes in 87 of Australia's 104 geographic regions, for example. Yes, absolutely. So right across Australia, this is a problem. And across um, Victoria, 
it's more than in across um, the whole city, people have to work more than a third of the week if they're in those low paid um, uh, uh, sectors. Oh, and it's worse in nine regions where they have to work two thirds of a full works working week income to rent an apartment. Ah, uh, yes, and so you know those, um, and the, and and one of the things about that, so in you know Sydney CBD and in in um, the Gold Coast in Queensland in um, um, most of Canberra. Um, people have to work two thirds of the week just to pay rent. But in every community, we need those workers. I mean, every community has supermarkets. Every community has childcare centres, and so you you need people to be able to kind of live near where they work. But in those places, it's basically impossible for someone on a low wage to find a rental. And there's a lot of other communities, you know, where um, um, people have to, um, you know, pay like half the week's wage just in rent. So what we're trying to highlight is that there's just not enough affordable rentals, you know, in the market. And the government really needs to be investing in more public and community housing so people have options when they go looking for a place to rent that they can afford. Now, when you looked at these figures, you found this right across Australia, every state, every state. So some are more expensive than others, but certainly um, every state has um, communities where people um, have to pay um, more than a third of their um, income. As you said, 87 of Australia's 104 um, regions. So that yeah, that's absolutely right across the state. So just to give you a sense, like in Canberra, a supermarket employee would have to work for 23 hours in Adelaide for 15 hours, in Melbourne for 18 hours, and in Perth for 19, 19 hours. So it's it's like it's just the rental market's just really out of control, and and that's the the difficulty that's faced by people who are in paid employment. But for people who are out of work, it's just like it's it's like they can the the rent can be more than what they actually get in social security payments. So it's just basically impossible for them to afford a rental. Now, in the Australian economy, it's quite clear that uh, there's one group of people who are house owners uh, and people who are uh, in using investment properties as a way of uh, uh, covering themselves in their instead of superannuation. There's a whole system within our... Uh, and in the last election, in fact, the Labor Party went to the electorate with a change negative gearing approach, which would have had some effect on this, uh, but it was rejected by the electorate. Do you think it's because people don't really understand that if there is public housing and social housing, that in actual fact, this would have an effect on the uh, rental market? Look, I think um, the results at the last election, you know, why that happened are kind of complex. And I, I don't know that the government, the people did reject um, the negative gearing proposed reforms and in, in, they seemed like they were sort of pretty popular. It was maybe some of the things around the um, uh, franking credits that got like some bad press. But um, 
I think what, I mean, the level of social housing investment that we are calling for in the campaign is intended not just to provide, um, like we're calling for 500,000 social and affordable housing properties to be built across the country, not just because the people who need them right now would then get a property, but also because putting that much extra low-cost rentals into the market would actually affect the price of the private rental properties because now there's so much competition for low-cost rentals that it doesn't matter if you're trying if you're a landlord um, looking for tenants for a place that has holes in the wall and cracked paint and you know um, you know a stove that doesn't even really properly work like uh, there's lots of places around that are like that, but they'll still find tenants because people are really desperate. Um, so the idea is if there's a lot of low-cost rentals that are that are available, then people can um, go looking for a cheaper property and be able to choose something that's a quality property and not have to accept, um, you know, some really exploitative situation where a landlord is... Um, you know, just taking advantage of the fact that people are being squeezed out of the rental market to to force someone to pay a lot of money for a property that's um, not up to scratch. So there's a whole lot of issues involved here. Uh, the uh, creation of this uh, system that has actually uh, priced essential workers out of the market and COVID has shown how essential the caretakers of our society are. Uh, what we're really seeing is that um, wealth is being um, given greater priority. The wealth in certain people's hands is given greater priority to over the sustainability of our society. Would that be fair to say? Look, it does seem like, you know, these um, uh, decisions that are taken by government, um, you know, their choices between one thing and another. And unfortunately, the government has chosen to invest money, say, at the moment in, you know, tax cuts for high income earners at the same time that we've got, um, you know, 116,000 people in Australia homeless and those numbers keep growing. So, it's, it's very frustrating, but I guess that's why we created the campaign because, you know, the government is ultimately, um, you know, our government to, to influence and by being active citizens, we can be more influential on government. So um, we wanted to give people a way to be a part of that. And I mean, you know, not just through the Everybody's Home campaign and signing petitions and what have you. I mean, I would encourage you know, the list, all your listeners to, you know, get in contact with your local MP, say that you don't think this is okay, you know, write letters to the paper, like those kinds of um, actions can make a difference to getting government to listen because I have to say at the moment uh, this government um, is not listening terribly hard. So we're talking about the federal government. Have you had any um, action from or responses from state governments? Look, well, certainly in Victoria, we've had a very good response. So, um, you know, the Everybody's Home campaign was part of the effort to encourage the Victorian government to invest in social housing. And they have put um, 
uh, $5.3 billion into a social housing investment program over four years. And that's, like, that's a pretty big um, investment from a state government. It's bigger than certainly any other state government has made and it's bigger than the Victorian government has made in the past. So, look, that's a really positive result, but it comes after years of underinvestment. And so it's like we're playing catch-up and... Um, what we really need is for it to not just be for state governments that are having to do all the heavy lifting because really it's the federal government has more um, you know, income, more revenue to spend than the state government does. So we are, we are really calling on the federal government to lead a process with the states where effectively they put in some money and, the, and, and require the states to add to that pool so you know they say look you know we'll invest in social housing in victoria if we spend um uh you know for every million dollars we spend you also have to spend a million dollars um that would of course you know mean that you had two million dollars for every million that the um federal government put in so it should be seen as a good deal by them um and certainly you know the state governments i think would really um appreciate partnering to do it and I think it's really difficult for state governments when they are left just kind of carrying the can for what's a reasonably expensive though very important sort of program of spending. Do you have an attitude towards uh, public housing versus social housing? Well we use social housing to refer to public housing plus community housing and to be honest I think they're both really important so you know, the public housing um, um, portfolio is kind of the bedrock of of social housing. It's, um, you know, such an important part of the, the housing um, options that are available to people. But um, community housing um, provides some really fantastic um, boutique options to particular um, client groups. So, for example, you know, there's some really great providers that provide housing specifically to women or um, providers who provide housing specifically to older people and and then those housing products are really um, tailored and made really great for that particular group of people who are using the housing likewise with young people. Um, so I think they both have a role to play um, but um, yeah certainly in Victoria the public housing portfolio is, is much bigger than the um, community housing portfolio. Now, what uh, are you um, hoping will happen um, with the campaign? Uh, look, we're um, the campaign has grown. I said we started in 2018. We've got um, more than 32,000 supporters in the community now and there's about 500 organisations that, that get on board and... Um, uh, and and so our what we hope is that in this upcoming election that the conversation in the community is so strong about the need for social housing, you know, that we have journalists kind of constantly asking questions about it. We have people organising in their local community to say we want action on, on the housing front. The governments feel like they just, um, or political parties feel like they just have to come to the election with a good platform to say what we're going to do about it and I think that that um, 
uh, is quite likely to happen, partly because the issue is actually really fierce in a lot of um, quite marginal regional electorates. So right up and down the coast in Queensland, right up and down the coast in New South Wales, people have moved out of cities to those communities and the rental markets are under immense pressure. They've had you know, price rises of 20% and more and vacancy rates uh, at 0.5% in a lot of those communities. So a lot of really um, ordinary workers, like even, you know, mid-range workers with reasonable incomes can't find housing. And I think that starts to really shift the dial on the degree to which the government um, uh, is is likely to act. So, you know, we, we hope that will have make a difference, but certainly the activity of like all of the citizens who are involved in the campaign, um, makes a difference as well. So we are looking forward to seeing some positive action. Look, another issue that's really um, been really hot this year is is the issues around um, women's safety and gender equality, and particularly in the context of the federal government um, uh, having some PR crises in that space. And so, look, we are really focusing on the need for housing for women and children fleeing violence. Currently, um, you know, thousands of women each year flee uh, uh, situations where they're, you know, in a violent home, leave and end up homeless. And um, that's really devastating and, and in, in many cases results in women feeling like they've got no option but to return to a violent home. And so we're really calling on the government to step up and provide housing, particularly in that circumstance and hoping that they, um, uh, you know, in the, at this time when they are looking like they want to show that they care about these issues, um, put the effort that's needed into providing housing so that women can be safer. Uh, I just just one thing. Um, this is just a sort of a left field thing. I know I've been following this issue for quite a while, and I know that in England, for example, there was a very strong campaign in London uh, around the uh, fact that there were a very large, low-paid cohort of cleaners and people of that sort who were uh, used to maintain the status quo in the central business district, but who were unable to afford housing anywhere close to where they worked. And of course, their pay was so slow that, and what the campaign was basically doing was shaming the uh, the wealthy classes who were actually living off the poverty of other people. And this seems to me to be reflected in this uh, research that you've done, which is uh, uh, essential workers having to bear the brunt of uh, maintaining a status quo for another class of people in society. Yeah, look, and that that, that, um, is very much the case of what happens in particularly the bigger cities like Melbourne and Sydney, where low-paid workers often have to travel um, from cheaper outer suburbs into the inner areas where they work. And, you know, because if you're working in a childcare centre in, um, you know, Fitzroy, you're unlikely to be able to afford to rent in Fitzroy. You have to 
um, rent in, you know, somewhere that might be an, an hour's travel away on public transport or even more. So I think that that situation that applies to London um, also very much applies to um, uh, Melbourne. Mm. And this gives another uh, side to this so-called... Um uh, the fair go and, you know, the jingoistic uh, 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 catch cry of the Australian way and all this sort of stuff. It's its really um, shameful, actually. Oh, look, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows and I think also people just sort of um, common sense about it is that, you know, we, we have much stronger communities when we all... Um, when you have a, a range of people from diverse, uh, all sorts of diversity, diverse incomes, diverse backgrounds, diverse um, um, abilities, all sorts living in the community together. And um, when you separate things out so that you have communities that only have wealthy people and then all the people who are on low incomes live over there, then that's where you end up with more divisions in society and so part of the picture is about creating strong communities where you do have your childcare workforce and your supermarket workforce living alongside your, you know, your lawyers and your um, architects and other people that earn a lot more money. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we've got uh, Sally Thompson on the line, who is from Maribyrnong. And uh, this brings the whole issue of homelessness and diversity uh, to a local level in um, Maribyrnong. You, Sally, you, you went off to the council to uh, deliver a message regarding a project that uh, gives uh, social housing to more people in Seddon. Can you explain what happened? Sure. Uh, hi, hi, Annie. Uh, yeah, look, um, what happened in Seddon is... Um, Seddon, of course, is a little suburb right next to Footscray in the inner west in Maribyrnong. And we had um, a block of... Um, when you come into Footscray, there's kind of a, a couple of main roads through, and on one of those, Barclay Street, there was a block of apartments that was used mainly for international students. Well, of course, because of COVID, we don't have the international students that we once had. So the housing provider went to council and said, look, can we change the nature of our permit here so that we can use these 66 apartments for affordable and social housing. And I just assumed that in the middle of this housing and homelessness crisis, particularly in a community like the Inner West, which is a working-class community that has a very proud history of yeah. providing affordable housing for waves of working-class and poor people from around the world, really, that this would be a bit of a no-brainer. And I was pretty stunned when I was sitting um, on Facebook one night to see um, the Socialist Council on Maribyrnong, uh, Jorge Jorquera, posting that um, council had voted against this change to the planning reg uh, um, uh, regime and that only himself and uh, one of the Green councillors, Bernadette Thomas, had, um, had voted in favour of this uh, building being used for social housing. So uh, there's a number of us who were, who were quite 
stunned, actually, by, by this development. And what ensued has been this sort of community debate, which has been pretty shocking in its kind of othering of people living in social housing. And um, I'm someone who grew up in public housing myself, and um, I, was, I was pretty sickened, actually, by some of the um, attitudes of the councillors who had thrown their lot in with really a very tiny minority of um, neighbours who had, I think, you know, really un, uh, unfair um, uh, attitudes towards the people that might might move into those social housing apartments. So, so, so what um, you're talking mm. about is this is a, a, the gentrification, I mean, it's an outrage actually, because it's incredibly yeah. uh, working class area around there. The whole, it's built on the blood of working class people. Absolutely. And it, and it's all about gentrification and what they're saying sure that uh, these people aren't good enough to be living with them. They're, yep. they're trouble. Yeah. Oh, look, I think one of the things that really horrified me about this was the um, just the hypocrisy. I mean, the, the neighbours complaining live in what they call workers' cottages, those little inner, uh, inner west yeah. workers' cottages. The clues in the name, for God's sake, you know, and also <laughs> converted warehouses. Now, and, and what was really revolting about it was that a lot of the councillors were saying things like, oh, it's not that we don't support social housing, it's just not an appropriate spot for it. Now, this is... Um, an area right next to Footscray Station, right next to um, uh, all of the services of Footscray, you know, health and welfare and whatever else. It's on a main road, for heaven's sake. It's not in some little pocket of Sleepy Hollow, you know. If poor people can't live there, then really they can't live anywhere, you know. So, so there was this kind of faux debate about, oh, it's not that we don't support social housing, it's just that we want them to have the best and that's not the best for them, which which was, was pretty you know, pretty transparent, I have to say. Mm. And uh, it obviously uh, uh, flies in the face of a need for a diverse community. Uh, There's 3% of housing stock in Sydney social housing, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that um, this is what was so uh, stunning about it as well, is that the Inner West actually has a lot of social and public housing, but it tends to be concentrated in around the kind of Braybrook, West Footscray type area. Um, Seddon just happens to be a little pocket that's that's gentrifying fast and um, it only has about 3%. So so one of the arguments that was put forward is, oh, it's not that we're against social housing, it's just that we don't want too much of it congregated together you know, and, and ironically, this was the one part of that inner west area that had very little social housing at all. And the apartment block that we were talking about had 66 one-bedroom apartments. So, you know, we're not talking a high-rise. We're not talking, you know, an entire suburb. You know, um, it, you know, it, it was really a bit of a nonsense, I think. Yeah, yeah. So you actually fronted up to the council and you were able to turn the ship around. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, look, myself and many others, I have to say. So we, we managed to get a... It went through council. Um, the housing provider, um, who is a not-for-profit social housing provider, Unison, they um, appealed to VCAT. And then the council reconsidered, had another meeting reconsidering it on the basis of that appeal. And um, basically what myself and, and, and a number of others um, did was convince them to, to drop their, their opposition. Unison came to the party sort of to try and, you know, 
cut through by offering to provide um, security guards three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, which that alone, uh, um, (laughs) and and ironically, our mayor is in the media running around crowing about what a breakthrough this is for social housing and encouraging other councils to do the same. And one of the things, the battle's not over as far as I'm concerned, because this is a really worrying precedent that a handful of NIMBYs can shake down a not-for-profit, you know, basically, and, and pressure them to provide private security to meet the irrational fears of a handful of neighbours, you know? It's a really worrying precedent, and I totally get why Unison did it, because they just wanted to cut through and they wanted to make a... You know, they just wanted to to move on and to meet the neighbours part way. But, you know, my attitude to that is some of these neighbours have had capital gains increases of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of percent. If they're frightened of their neighbours, maybe they can pay for private security instead of expecting some poor little not-for-profit, you know, to take money that should be spent to house people to pay for private security guards. It's a really troubling precedent. Yeah, it's really shameful. The, it's uh, shameful. Yeah, it is shameful. So uh, before I let you go, because this is a fantastic thing that you've done, uh, there, were, there was basically a step-by-step campaign. It was the fact that you had a socialist councillor, wonderful yes. step, that uh, alerted people. Then yes. there was the uh, uh, petition that you, where yes. you physically got people to uh, look at the issue and you pro- uh, you know educated people to understand what was going on and they put their signed their name to this petition and yes. then there was you going to council and uh, talking directly into their eyes to shame yes. them effectively yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm a bit embarrassed sort of being the figurehead of this because a lot of people, um, you know, uh, were really passionate about this. And, and to get a petition through council, it has to have physical signatures on a physical bit of paper, which in, you know, uh, restrictions and the middle of winter is quite challenging. And, you know, if, if they had have taken an online petition, it would have been many, many thousands of people because I had just people on, you know, contacting me randomly on social media going, how do I sign that petition? You know, can I meet you somewhere so I can physically sign it. You know, pe- people. I mean, the, the good news story in this is that the the you know the the majority of people who we spoke to uh, were horrified by this. It's not it's not the inner west that they know and love. You know, it, this decision is not aligned. The, the councillors who voted against this are way out of line with the local community. You know, I mean, people moved to the inner west because it's diverse, because it's affordable, because it has this phenomenal history. Yeah. Um, that we're all so proud of. I mean, that's and and a number of people um, contacted council and made the point because one of the things councillors said was that this social housing would ruin the amenity of the surrounding neighbours. And quite a few people, including myself, contacted council and said, "Well, what about my amenity? What about my right to live in this diverse, wonderful working class community that I love? You know, what about my right to have it not not changed into this bland, you know, middle class?" enclaves, you know. Mm. Um, what about my amenity? This is the community I love. This is not okay. So it's it's been it's been a um, it's been quite heartening the response actually. Thanks for talking to us, Sally. And no worries. More strength to your arm. Oh, thanks, Annie.
Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, on the line we've got Stephanie Thurston. G'day Stephanie, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I was really glad that you got in contact with me and uh, you're talking about, you're from the from Haksu, the Health and Community Services Union and you're talking to us about a worker-led rehabilitation and outpatient project which Haksu and AMWU are spearheading and I looked into this much more carefully and uh, found uh, found out more about Foundation House in Sydney this is a really important project, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it comes at a really great time, particularly in terms of what Victoria and indeed the whole country are grappling with. Um, you know, what we know in terms of the statistics before COVID-19 was that approximately one in five Australians will grapple with risky addiction in their lifetime. And you know, according to experts, we're looking at about 500,000 Australians each year that are unable to access services when they ask for help. Um, you know, what we know too is that services for the most part are unaffordable, uh, the public beds not available or the waiting lists are too long. So we see this as a really great alternative for working people to, to quickly identify that they need help in the first instance, but access their help in it, it, that help in a timely, affordable manner as well. Yeah, yeah, this is an, uh, so for example, in the uh, construction industry, they have a very high rate of suicide, for example, um, and uh, addictions uh, can lead, be, you know, uh, a, a step towards such uh, awful, uh, awful outcomes. Um, but of course, when people are able to actually access a service that can help them, you know, hold their hand and help them through this uh, very confronting period in their life, you know, being addicted and out of control effectively without any shame attached. uh, This is quite extraordinary uh, process. You've had lots of success in Sydney, haven't you? Absolutely. And, I mean, I suppose for us, I mean, the, the key points that really attracted us to, you know, this type of service for working people is firstly, it's a 28-day inpatient service. Now, you know, when we're looking at the wider ecosystem of inpatient services, there's not that many services that are that 28-day period. And, you know, when we're talking about services that are three months long, six months long, that can be really inaccessible for working people. And a lot of the feedback we get is that they simply just don't seek help because they cannot afford to take that much time away from work. And touching on what you've um, spoken about in terms of the construction industry and suicide, what we know, uh, especially coming out of those Royal Commission recommendations into mental health in Victoria, is that mental health and uh, addiction issues are inextricably linked and so it's really difficult to ascertain which one comes first. It's a bit like the chicken and the egg. So another really important part of this project is you know, the ability to have your delegates and your health and safety representatives and your organisers trained up to know what to look for on site. So there's a really important harm reduction element to this as well where we see this as a really viable way of us catching working people before they fall as well. Um, 
you know, and certainly if it's attached to a bricks and mortar service, we, you know, we know that on average in Australia, it can take people up to 20 years to seek assistance with addiction. And that's because due to shame, due to stigma, but also due to services being inaccessible. So but really expensive, people, really expensive. Well, on that too, what we know is the current policy settings in Australia are costing us upwards of about $55 billion annually. And that's, you know, mostly due to the knock-on effects of, you know, lost productivity, road crashes, people ending up in emergency departments, losing their jobs. Uh, We want to try and halt that cycle. Um, And also, you know, for us, it's a no-brainer. We know that for every dollar invested into rehabilitation, the community saves $7. And for every dollar invested into harm reduction, the community saves $17. And, you know, in this really challenging economic period that we, we find ourselves in, firstly, we think it's, it's the best time to do it. But secondly, we know that the best rehabs in Victoria, and certainly this would be emulated across the country, are grappling with something really quite prolific in COVID-19 because... Social distancing means they can't take as many people. We know that the waiting lists, are abs- they were already ballooning out before this pandemic, but that inevitably has gone through the roof with the pandemic. So, you know, interventions like this where workplaces are involved, where trade unions are involved, we think it's a, it's a really important time for the government to, you know, let us have a crack at this down here. Now, tell, tell our listeners what, what this crack is. Tell us about it. It's a really interesting project. Yeah, so our main ask to the government at this stage is a piece of Crown land to be given to us uh, on a peppercorn lease. So at this stage, we're not really even asking for funding. We're just asking for a piece of land somewhere so we can initiate the process. Um, The unions have been in constant consultation with the Victorian Alcohol and Other Drug Association, which is the peak body that sits sort of above all of the the rehabilitation services in Victoria. Um, I'm really pleased to to say that Odyssey House have agreed to auspice this project and the land uh, because, you know, we very much... Uh, acknowledge that we don't know how to run a rehab. We just know that working people need this service. So, you know, that's really important as well because that means we'll be giving the best practice uh, service for working people. What we're planning to offer is a 28-day inpatient project with uh, inpatient program with consistent outpatient support. And I think, look, the key part of this really is that, you know, it's fun. predominantly we want this to be funded via enterprise bargaining agreement clauses. They've had really great success with that in New South Wales. And what that means is that, you know, once you do that, businesses, businesses are involved and businesses are seeing really, really great outcomes from being involved. Um, and look, the, the best part of this for me, and it's the thing that really really uh, made me fall in love with the project. When I when I went up to Foundo to visit, was the Wednesday night relapse prevention barbecue. Now, what that is, is that all of the current intake of clients cook this big feast, they break bread together, and everyone who has been through that, that process has successfully gone back to work. They all come, all of them. And when they told me this, I was expecting 30 people and when I, I was, I was amazed. It was beautiful. There was about 120 people there. Everyone had come straight from work, um, and you know, proudly 
union proudly back to work. And what was beautiful about it is that these people who have gone through this process are now back on site being that example, being that example and amplifying, um, you know, the message that, you know, there is a community of trade unionists here ready to catch you if you fall. Yeah, yeah. In the um, testimony, they talk about you saved my life, and th- that will be exactly the truth of the matter. And that's why they're so committed. Um, there is a particular site that you're interested in. It's the old psychiatric asylum on the Victor. Um, in is it in Footscray or in Street, just next to uh, the Western. Mm. And I'm sure listeners, if they've if they know Footscray at all, they'll drive past and go, "Oh, that monstrosity! It's an old brutalist mm. <laughs> building." Uh, and look, it's heritage listed. And I mean, for us, we you know we think it's in a great position, um, right next to a hospital. That's really important for us. But look, even if that site doesn't come off, I mean, we're we're not precious. Our only, you know. Our only hope is that, you know, we want it to be somewhere where there is an identified need for public rehabilitation beds uh, because, we, you know, we're really committed to this service sitting within the wider ecosystem of the, you know, the incredible services that are already offered in Victoria. Um, anything we can do to amplify the incredible work they already do, we will do. Um, we're also committed to writing an enterprise bargaining agreement for the actual workforce that will one day work in our service. And, you know, that's another thing that, you know, we, we want to give to the wider alcohol and other drug industry because we know that a lot of that industry is still working on the SHADS award. Um, so that's, you know, any, anything we can do that's in line with our trade union values, we will do to help amplify the wider sector as well. What, what's the SHAD award? Uh, so the SHADS Award is the Social Community Housing and Disability Award. Um, it's not at all fit for purpose for a lot of those uh, social and community services industries. Uh, and, you know, anything we can do to get people off that award and onto EBAs, we will 100% do. What we know, uh, you know, within the wider AOD workforce and why it's important is that we know there's a huge workforce shortage at the moment. Um, So to the point where I had a CEO of a rehab say, if this gets up in in the next three months, who's going to work there? Mm. So, (laughs) you know, we also want to try and use this service to be a really great training ground to get, you know, training happening for new people entering the workforce, especially people who are wanting a career change. Um, Just, you know, anything we can do to help help this industry because it is, you know, it's an industry that for a really long time has been seen as the poor cousin to mental health. Um, the Royal Commission recommendations have very much demonstrated that, you know, these issues are inextricably linked and, we, you know, we need to be investing in this workforce and their training as well. Yeah, to have a healthy uh, society, basically. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. And, look, it's better for the mental health workforce if the alcohol and other drug workforce are adequately supported. I mean, I think something that I had never considered before I became an organiser for the Health and Community Services Union was, you know, because of the lack of uh, available treatment beds in Victoria and because 
you know, harm reduction services are so scarcely funded and they urgently need more funding, what tends to happen is that people who should be seeking the assistance of those services are ending up in mental health yeah, services. Yeah, I know this um, because I yeah, know people right. who work in that area. Right, and they're not fit for purpose. And the reality is we have a workforce shortage in mental health as is. Mm. Uh, we have a very burnt-out workforce and that that extra added pressure is no good for them. So the more that we're, we're funding these services in mental health and alcohol and other drugs at the same rate, the better for the, all of the workforce. So what can uh, listeners do to help? I mean, it's great to hear this story, but uh, tell us what, because it's about unions, it's about workers, and it's about collective action. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, for us, the best thing that listeners can do, you know, if if you want more information, please don't hesitate to reach out. But, you know, the more, the more voices we can get writing to the likes of Minister Pallas in his capacity as the Minister for Industrial Relations, uh, James Molino as the Minister for Mental Health, Martin Foley as the Minister for Health. I mean, that's really, really important. The more voices pushing for this, the better. Um, The more that these ministers hear that, you know, the collective want this. Um, We're not, you know, they're not afraid of it. I think think for a lot of people, um, talking about issues of addiction, it's not sexy. It's not a sexy topic. I think for a really long time, you know, we're, we're battling the old war on drugs narrative, that yeah, tough yeah. on crime thing. Um, you know, I just think the more that collectively we're all telling these ministers that, no, this is a really great way forward. We want this. It's, you know, it's going to be better for the community. You know, I think, you know, that is extremely helpful. And also sharing on social media, resharing everything that all of the unions uh, post about it, that that. That in itself, I mean, it may seem small, but it's really, really helpful. Thanks very much for talking to us, Stephanie. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when we now know the reality of all this COVID business. Well, all this interruption to business by COVID. Laid out clearly Wednesday by those who know what's good for us with banner headline across P1 of the Caring Business Class Journal, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, deaths part of living with virus. In other words, deaths are good for us because they're good for the caring business class, which is the same thing. Although living with deaths does seem to be a bit of a contradiction, but we'll ignore that. Part of not living with would be more accurate. And the caring business class seem to assume that the not living won't be them. So it's now official. Profit trumps health. On that, as they describe COVID as breaking out into the community, it's as nothing compared to the dangerous outbreak of over-the-top jingoism breaking out into the community emanating from the Tokyo virus and spread by the host tele-channel. OK, over-the-top jingoism may be tautological. Is there any other type? I do enjoy wonderful sporting performances, but a person could be a raving fascist, yet as long as she, he has Aussie on her, his uniform, we're supposed to love and adopt her, him. On that, when Emma McKeon, and I'm not suggesting she is a fascist, by the way, she's probably a very pleasant young woman, but when she added two more gold to a collection on Sunday, big supremo scuttled them more latch son, a.k.a. scummo, gave a sigh, thank you. He attempted to bask in her glory. Uh, why thank you and not congratulations, scummo? Because she's taking people's minds off matters I'd rather were not on their minds. 
like even the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, highlighting that True Blue Aussie may have been fourth on the gold, gold, gold table, but thanks to Scuttle Them and the team's super efficiency, we are 78th on the vaccination table, which doesn't matter because we now know we have to die with it anyway, or sorry, I live with it, which means dying with it, and up where people are sadly dying with it, nonetheless, a survey of who's dealing with all this better saw the headline, Voters Rate Berridge Lockerman over Big Supremo. And I thought, what a choice. But the story didn't say what we can only assume, the survey desperately pleading, uh, uh, what's the third possibility? Thank goodness there's not much possibility of workers, lazy, avaricious workers, ripping off the caring employers who so care for them, thanks to the wise legal minds on our sundry benches, including the High Court, whose their honours have so much in common with and rapport with low-paid casual workers in particular, forced, however, to rule against low-paid casual workers with whom they have so much in common, leading to the Caring Employers Capitalist Review the very next day, Thursday, High Court backs freedom of contract, double-dip casual pay thrown out. An appeal by caring employers joined by their caring business class government against a federal court ruling that a casual worker was entitled to paid leave because caring employers and scuttle them and the team know that is double dipping. Casual workers receive allowances for all the things they miss out on in the lowest of low pay most of them get, don't they? And we all know no caring employer would dud them and not pay even the lowest of low what they are entitled to under the caring employer's law. Anyway, it's now official they're not entitled to paid leave, sick leave, superannuation, under amendments drawn up for the government by a former Fair Work, no longer work choices, just looks like it, Vice President, who resigned in disgust at the way industrial law was so biased toward workers. God, imagine some of the decisions if it wasn't. And upon his resignation, the media was hard-pressed to find a case in which he had not ruled in favour of the caring employer. Yet in that capitalist review story, it fingered a federal court judge who was on the full bench which made the pro-worker decision they were appealing as ruling in favour of unions most of the time. Shame, shame. Yet that save his honour this week extended the fangs of the Smash the Evil Construction Union's jackboot con mission by finding the good old AWU 177 grand over 50 workers attending an ACTU election rally in 2018. The extension being these were not evil, evil lawless construction workers as such, but one steal their labour workers who manufactured material used in the construction industry. And just to prove, if more proof was needed, at how the system is so tilted in favour of, uh, to favour evil unions over poor caring employers, great supermarket kills budgets, withdrew from enterprise bargaining because under the biased pro-worker laws they can, and the union can do nothing about it. Well, it can't take industrial action because that would land it before their honours and thus kills budgets, joins other notable caring employers, reducing their workers' wages and conditions. So again, imagine what they could do if the law wasn't so anti-caring business class.
Oh, and the true blue Aussie capitalist review editorialised that the slashing of wages and conditions was the fault of the evil ACTU, which refuses to be flexible. Apparently, evil unions and lazy avaricious workers should agree to slash their own wages and conditions. Oh, and we know the government's attempt to get the evil unions away from all that lovely, lovely super money through the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Finance Commission was thwarted when they got the goodies in the corporate boardrooms. Well, good on them, the government, I mean. They haven't given up. They've established an inquiry into the impact of evil union super funds on competition in the capitalist system, led by former Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs poly Tim Will Get Union Sun, with big economic guru Just Friday Icebergs ordering it to concentrate on the industrial super funds. Now, also last week, we mentioned how at least $25 billion was ripped off by caring employers who didn't qualify for JobKeeper. And following the relentless attacks on the poorest of over so-called robo-debt, where they hadn't ripped off, we were laying odds on Josh being as relentless in demanding these caring employers repay the debt. Well, again, I hope you took the odds, because the same day Josh urged an inquiry into the union super funds, he, yeah, you guessed it, announced he would not allow a review into the JobKeeper rip-offs, theft of public funds. Goodness, we should be rolling in money, shouldn't we? Oh, and Tim, apart from conducting his totally neutral, unbiased review of evil union super funds, also attacked the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commissioner Haynes for sermonising and recommendations that make life oh so difficult for the poor finance industry just because he found the poor finance industry made life difficult for everyone else. Recommendations the government is almost exponentially watering down. I find it very frustrating that a lawyer hands down a tablet that's equated to a sermon on the mount on the future direction of an industry. Poor Tim was aghast. Still, I'm sure he won't attack the lawyers on the High Court bench for their decision this week to prevent evil double-dipping. That should make him very happy. Just to cheer us up a bit more, a bloke called Daniel Hale no, no, a guy called a former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Train Killer, whose job was to finger targets for the drone program, a button pushed in the Pentagon, wiping out Afghans and Pakistanis and whoever else around the world the U.S. of doesn't like, the odd wedding party and social gathering, a train killer who saw the light and realized lots and lots of people over and above the people the U.S. of doesn't like were being wiped out in these attacks. Thus, he leaked information to a journalist, became an anti-war and civil rights activist, and naturally got charged with exposing the U.S. OBS war crimes. And this week was sentenced to, I think it was ten and a half months. He could have got ten years, so perhaps he can consider himself lucky, as he could not, under the law, plead not guilty, because there's no not guilty in matters where you expose U.S. OBS war crimes and massive cover-ups of the slaughter of innocents. Now, I raise this because there is also light at the end of. See, it's been revealed that cream of US of, cream of US of youth, young men and women in uniform, trained killers, protecting True Blue Aussie from their US of base in Darwin, who break True Blue Aussie laws like rape and assault and theft, are being allowed by True Blue Aussie to be tried by the US of legal system and given a proverbial slap over the wrist. 
Now, this is very promising, because if True Blue Aussie allows US of citizens breaking True Blue Aussie laws in True Blue Aussie to be tried by the US of system, which crushes those who expose war crimes but effectively exonerates rape and violence, well, why not? That's what war's all about. Then great news, we presume, for... Julian Assange, charged with the heinous crime of exposing US of war crimes. Surely, True Blue Aussie will now demand that a True Blue Aussie citizen, not even in the US of, and whose extradition was refused by a Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Her Honour, be released immediately, and the US of return the legal favour by withdrawing its relentless attempt to drag him before a court for a charge on which he cannot plead not guilty. So we expect our Attorney General, the oh-so-humane great legal mind, Michaelia Koch, the workers, to demand Julian's release any day now. Oh, here's how we can make even more money. What odds Michaela doing just that, demanding Julian Assange be released? Finally, that vexatious raver, Clive Parmagina, in one of his advertising rants informed us Lockdowns destroy jobs. Good point, Clive. Like caring employers destroying jobs by closing down, say, a nickel plant and refusing to pay the millions he owes his workers. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. Yeah, and you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we've got uh, Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? Well, I'm, uh, as usual, uh, quite inspired by young Kevin. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> right. How do we possibly top that? Yeah. <laughs> one, can, one cannot possibly complete or even think about it with the... Uh, Kevin, he summed it up uh, a lot of things up there very beautifully, as always. Yeah, and he also uh, lots of things sticks to his shoe too. He uh, uh, a couple of um, uh, items that I had uh, uh, escaped me. So it's it is actually very illuminating as well as witty. Um, before we do start having a conversation, there was something that I needed to tell somebody, and I thought I might as well tell you and the rest of the people listening, yeah. that yeah. Uh, a little bird told me that uh, uh, the government, the federal government's been getting its departments to look into ways and means of uh, taxing GST on food which I thought was a very interesting segue around the topic we want to talk to about, which is lessons not learnt by COVID. Um, Yes. Well, I think um, uh, it is a good introduction because one of the main focal points for the next uh, 15 minutes or so ought to be on uh, how the food industry proposes to deal with the onward raging of the pandemic. Um. But I think the big picture overall is that what is happening in recent times, not just in Australia, but in all countries of the world, is that we're being reminded about how uh, how shallow these claims are that the nature of work is changing in the 21st century. And I think that the COVID pandemic is showing... Uh, that, in fact, there are fundamental ways in which work is not changing. Sure, there is a superficial and, well, it's no less the real for that, 
changes in technology and other uh, management approaches besides technology to change the way work is done, of course, but at the same time, and driving those changes along, there is certain continuities. And the pandemic is showing those. And that is, firstly, that all depends on the ongoing exploitation of labour. In other words, in the context of change, there is a continuity in which how workers are exploited is the same as it has been for the last 250 years. Yeah, you mean it's really exposing that uh, the essential workers are the ones that are maintaining the system and that we have a slightly hysterical uh, boss class or ruling class at the moment reflected in mainstream media. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think what we're seeing uh, uh, is, for example, when you read regularly in the Financial Review, uh, that august journal that um, <laughs> uh, quite correctly Kevin calls the Capitalist Review, um, that you have, for example, just last week, you had a big lithium miner um, c- lamenting that there weren't enough workers. In other words, they can't get on with making a profit without workers. Even though their their press has been that workers are irrelevant and you should just kowtow and uh, thank your lucky stars that you've got a job. Yes, exactly. Uh, in, other, in other words, all wealth comes from the efforts of workers during their working time. And, uh, of course, that wealth divides in the first instance into two parts, um, profits and wages. So no profits... There's no profiteering without workers doing the work. The profiteering is not created by the employer, but by the efforts of the workers. Another example um, uh, is we've got now the construction industry, those champions of workers and workers' rights to have a decent union, um, Uh, they are now also lamenting and calling and saying straight up that workers are essential, that their construction workers should be defined as essential because they are essential to reboot the construction industry in New South Wales because Madame uh, Berejiklian has closed down the construction industry. Now... As you say, that raises questions about essential work. What is essential work these days? Um, Food production is pretty essential. Food and water production and distribution is pretty essential. The society can't tick over uh, over without adequate food and water supply. And uh, however, that's the fact that that happens is not down to the bosses who employ the workers. It's down to the workers. So I think that uh, it's a very interesting time in which the pandemic is forcing us to remember the continuity, not the changes, not just the changes that are going on in the character of work. And I think in our own way, Berejiklian and others, but Berejiklian in Australia, is actually confirming, whether she wants to or not, um, uh, Karl Marx's approach to understanding uh, how the society works is 
theory of value. I think that's... Uh... Yeah, yeah, well, it's not interesting because uh, one of the things that occurred to me when we were just talking, you were just talking, was uh, the fundamentally abusive nature of the the capitalist system that we live in. Like, it's abusive, as in the same way as women who pull, uh, pull a lot of the weight of society, the maintenance of society, are constantly... Uh, figured in a fairly abu- you know uh, uh, abusive system where it, uh, which can culminate in domestic violence or violence in general against yeah. women uh, yeah. but it's exactly the same sort of level of abuse uh, to workers uh, you know underpinning the notion that we have a society that's intrinsically abusive and needs to uh, to um, it's not it, it, and and that is exposed to, to all people, all workers, and uh, it needs to be exposed, uh, or it is exposed in this ongoing onslaught around insecure work and low pay for people who are absolutely essential to the running of the system. Well, I think it's very true that um, uh, working uh, that women are uh, doubly, at least, exploited in capitalist societies like ours. And that exploitation, wrapped up in that exploitation, uh, both shaping it and being shaped by it, is, of course, that uh, you basically have to own up and recognise that every woman in our society uh, is at risk, both at home and then going to work, at work, coming home from work the risk or the threat or the overhang of um, uh, violence against women is there. And that is no less so in the journey to and from work uh, and also while being at work, which is why I think it is entirely uh, a major and significant development that our small union movement is taking um, the prevention of harassment and violence at work as a significant bargaining issue. Clauses that do that are very important. I think it, you know that's one dimension of one of you know the major crises that are happening in our society right now. The you know this this crisis where fifty percent of the population are not safe in the society. The the reinforcement, if you like, of that is in the nature of exploitation when any worker is at work and any group of workers is at work. So, um, so do you think that COVID is really exacerbating all the uh, issues that were already there, a little bit like um, when the tide goes, uh, goes out, it... Uh, one of, one exposes of the, main, the rocks. Yeah, yeah, I do actually. One of one of the main messages that enable the capitalist system to continue on the basis of some degree of consent is that the heroes of that system that make it happen and make sure that all of us can live relatively contentedly are the employers big corporations. They do such wonderful things 
including in bringing in new methods of production and distribution that isn't it all so wonderful for us. But what COVID is showing is it, it's not true. They are not essential. They are not essential. <laughs> for the, uh, the don't that, the don't tell program. them that, Don. Don't tell them that, that they have a crisis of personality. Well, I, well, I mean to say the workers working this out because so many workers fall for this. They have an instinctive sense that there's something that is not quite right about that message. But overall, the, one of the problems is that the system enable, uh, ensures that workers fall for it as well, even though they are doubtful about it. And so, but the reality is that what, what the pandemic is showing, including the mutations still to come, will continue to show, is that the daily or weekly or annual reproduction of society depends upon workers, not employers. And that raises all sorts of exciting possibilities for the future uh, and uh, potentially. Um, and also raises desperate messaging from mass media and employer messaging and so on that must disguise the fact that workers are the ones who reproduce the society. So when we come to essential workers, what is an essential worker these days? Um, how essential, for example, are the human resource managers in a public <laughs> relative, relative to the cleaners who are the lowest paid, if not very close to it, in a hospital but who are the real front line of keeping a hospital clean and safe. Um, uh, and how essential for that most essential of workers in a hospital, the cleaner, how essential is their access to the food and water supply that comes from workers in those industries? Are they essential workers? Well, of course they are. Still on the... Just to be a little bit provocative, and I think about this every time I see six or seven coffee shops uh, within, within 50 metres of each other on a, uh, on a street, um, how essential is a barista as a, as a food supply worker's? I'd like to be convinced about that. <laughs> well, there was a, there was a saying after two thousand uh, the downturn that there would be a um, cappuccino led recovery. Yes, well, I'm I'm sort of a desperado for a decent coffee myself, and you know I'm very fussy about it, but uh, for my sins. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is that there is essential and essential, but in fact, there's a network of essential workers in each. Together, in their in the sense in which they cooperate, even when they don't realise they're cooperating, they are making our society possible on a day by day basis. Even though it's an exploitative society, which is built around the exploitation of those workers, and of course the exploitation, the hyper exploitation of nature.
Yeah, well, it's interesting. Someone was telling me, this is a, a slightly oblique thing to say, but someone was telling me this very interesting story about how when the Twin Towers uh, were struck, that it was found that some people were in the building and continued to work at their desks and send yes. emails right to the point of collision, almost as if they didn't accept the fact of the reality around them. I mean, if they'd run, they probably would have survived. Um, The the reason why I bring it up, which is, you know, it's a horrible thought actually, but uh, why I'm bringing it up is uh, uh, as people are dealing with COVID and the reassessment or realisation of who is essential to maintaining the system, as opposed to the uh, financial sector that uh, generates spurious wealth uh, and policy makers that create wealth for big companies but not for the citizens of a country. Well, let's look at a contemporary example of what you're saying yeah. in Victoria right now. Yeah. Uh, SPC, a couple of days ago, the food production, uh, food canning production company uh, in Shepparton employs about 500 people. Uh it announced that uh, uh, every worker who employed there, it would be uh, mandatory, which is a soft way of saying it's compulsory, compulsory that they'd be vaccinated and that the first they should have, all of them have to have the first jab by September and their program has to be finished by November. They, they, they're saying that it's compulsory to be employed there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, SPC is owned by two, uh, a, a joint venture between two private equity companies. They took it over from uh, Coca-Cola's ownership a couple of years ago. Although Coca-Cola, in the deal, continue to get a share of the profits that are <laughs> produced by the workers, even though they no longer own it. Wow. Um, so this private equity firm... Now, anyone knows anything about private equity know that you're dealing with people who do not produce anything of value themselves. Rather, they appropriate the value that workers themselves produce at a hopefully at a higher rate so that they can accumulate more to make more. Mm. But the interesting thing is that in making this statement, almost certainly the SPC decision, they didn't consult with the workers at all. The workers found out when it was reported in the newspapers. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous, isn't it? It is. It is a, it's not just outrageous. It's a breach. It's probably a breach of Health and Safety Act consultation requirements. Yeah, yeah. And it's probably a breach, almost certainly, I've, I just read it again, uh, a breach of the consultation provisions, which are, um, uh, relatively speaking, quite... Uh, soft in the, uh, but nevertheless, it's a breach of the consultation provisions in the enterprise agreement. It's also incredibly disrespectful. Uh, and it's without talking about the legalities, absolutely, absolutely, because after all, it's the workers who produce all the value, and yet there they are treated uh, like mushrooms, really uh, kept in the dark, mm. and. Uh, so uh, we have a perfect example in the food industry. Essential workers really are essential workers because they're producing and uh, setting off the distribution of food. 
not even the Pope can pray without first having enough food and water in his system to do so, which is sort of <laughs> a pretty myographic way of explaining the point that is so important that we grasp. In addition, the, the one of the unions, the main union at SBC, of course, is the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. Yep. And uh, just some information from a report that they have just released, which is based on a survey to 850 of its uh, members across a big range of workplaces. This is in New South Wales. Yep. Uh, almost half uh, of the workers surveyed believe that they'd been put at risk uh, of COVID-19 transmission in their workplace. Yep. Only 39% said social distancing was properly applied in the workplace. Right. 82% said that wearing face masks were enforced, but that gap of 18.0% who were not uh, means that a fairly basic risk-reducing measure raises the level of danger. It's um, really irritating. Only 55% said their employer put extra cleaning, regular extra cleaning into their workplace. Hmm. And in regards to consultation, um, about one-third said that the employer was not consulting with them at all about dealing with COVID-19 in their workplace. Where a, where a mandatory, there's that, there's that um, weasel word again, where a mandatory, it's not comp because it really means compulsory. Yeah. Uh, COVID test testing regime has been introduced. Only one third of employers were paying workers for the time spent to get tested. Yeah. Yeah. And in workplaces where vaccination is required, in other words, there are already other workplaces out there not in the public eye like SPC's CEO decided to be, only 38% of employers are providing paid workers, are paid leave for workers to be immunised. It's so just pathetic. Now, that's union members. Yeah. You can bet that it's a lot worse than that in non-union workplaces, which, of course, is the majority of workplaces. They're just a load of freeloaders, aren't they? They are, indeed. And uh, that is the heart of the system, that a, a small minority who own and control are uh, uh, able to freeload bludge off of the majority. Now, you know, without going into all the detail, of course, um, that's all in the context that the mass of profits relative to wages is rising, which means the rate of exploitation of the workforce generally is rising. And I might say that some work I've done on this indicates and, you know, raise this for confirmation from anyone else who's better at doing the work than me, but it, the indications are that the rate of exploitation of workers in the mining industry, so we're back to our lithium mine now, the rate of exploitation there is about six times uh, bigger than the rate of exploitation in hospitality. Oh, God. Unbelievable. So, 
So now, and it's not good in hospitality. Obviously. No, 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 no. Just speak to anybody who works in hospitality. It's pretty yeah. grueling. That's pretty grueling. All right. On that happy note, <laughs> in this most perverse way, is uh, has Karl Marx cheering in his grave because his theory is being proved to be correct, and but of course it is wreaking havoc around the world. And maybe one time we can talk about those. Those countries, not many of them, and sometimes in some cases states within countries, are dealing with the pandemic with the utmost respect for their workforce and their people. Oh, well, we will. We uh, will talk to you about that. And there are good examples of that because uh, they indicate to us that the gross exploitation that COVID-19 is revealing and in a in a in a sharper and slightly different way can be defeated. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Lovely to join in again. Look forward to next time. Yeah. All the best to everybody. And that was Don Sutherland. Yes, very fascinating um, discussion. Uh, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We were looking into homelessness, the uh, Everyone's Home, the national campaign into, against homelessness, uh, when we spoke to the spokesperson, Kate Colvin. We followed that with Sally Thompson, who was uh, the spokespeople for a, a campaign in Maribyrnong that uh, forced the council to rethink its uh, uh, negative response to a social housing project over in the West. Uh, Stephanie Thurston was talking to us about a uh, Haksu and AMWU spearheaded project uh, for a rehabilitation, drug and uh, alcohol rehabilitation for workers, access for a 28-day program, a, a system. Uh, They're at the beginning of a uh, union-led rehabilitation centre in Victoria and Melbourne. This is the week that was, and then, of course, Don. We're going to go out with a... Uh, a I want to hear the whole song and we've got enough time to hear it. It's called Love, I Call Your Name and it's by uh, it's uh, from uh, an album put out by Kavisha Masella and it's just beautiful. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. So keep safe and uh, talk to you next week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.